Um, so Paul is one of our interns. Um, that is something that we value here at Christ Central, is letting our interns get a shot at the mic and, and, and practice what they are training to be, which in most cases is, is, is pastors or are pastors. So um, we let them come up here every once in a while and preach, and we give them scripture like this, which uh, on the face of it seems to call us to existential nihilism and meaninglessness. So um, good luck with this, Paul. Because uh, as I read my version of it, vanity of vanities actually is meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. So let me read it for us. This is the Word of God, um, and Paul's going to explain it to us. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all this toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with its seeing, and the ear not the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be amongst those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. I'm Paul Major. I am, as Jacob said, one of the interns here, and it is strangely my pleasure to preach from Ecclesiastes this morning. Uh, It's a wonderful day for Ecclesiastes. Um, So, let's dig in. There's this ancient Greek myth about a king named Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a particularly evil king, and because of his evil deeds, he was given an unusual and eternal punishment. Every day, he had to roll a boulder up a hill. However, every day, the boulder would roll all the way back down, and he'd have to start all over again. Day after day, he repeated rolling the boulder up the hill and watching it roll back down. He performed the same task. He did the same job. And every day he saw that there was nothing new that ever happened. The results were always the same. It was a waste of his time. What's the point? Maybe you can relate with Sisyphus. You work every day just to come home tired, go to sleep, and wake up to start all over again. Or maybe you spend the day looking for work, looking for something, anything to do, waiting by the phone, and nothing ever happens. Nothing ever changes. You have the same conversations, the same arguments with your, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers. You try to incorporate new things into your life, only to forget about them and revert back to the way things were before 
You try to stop doing things you know you shouldn't do. Yelling, speeding, gossiping, smoking, drinking, disrespecting your parents, provoking your kids. Only to give up and start all over again. What's the point? What is the point? Why even bother rolling these boulders up the hill in the first place? You know they're just going to roll back down to the bottom. Albert Einstein famously said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So why do we try over and over again? Are we insane? That's the very question that the book of Ecclesiastes tries to answer. Life is meaningless. There is nothing new under the sun. And even the sun itself is stuck in a loop of rising and setting and rising and setting. Admittedly, this is a depressing notion. That everything seems pointless. And there's no doubting that the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the most depressing, if not the most depressing book in the Bible. And it's up there with one of the most depressing books ever written. The message of Ecclesiastes is as dark and harrowing uh, as many of the bestsellers and modern classics on the book, and bookstores today. It is an ancient predecessor of postmodernism, which questions the meaning altogether and comes to the conclusion that there is no hope. And it's read by many as a manifesto of defeatism. Don't bother searching for meaning because there is none. It's as if the writer is telling us not to waste our time because he's already done all the legwork and the results are in life is meaningless. Why, you might ask, is this book in the Bible? Certainly there are many of the 66 books of the Bible that have something to say as an encouragement to us that we don't read from, that we don't preach from. So why even bother with Ecclesiastes? For starters, simply because it is in the Bible. There are plenty of books that people thought of as Scripture, which eventually never made it into what we call the Bible. There are also many books mentioned in the Bible as reliable and accurate sources that we no longer have in existence. Consider in Joshua, there's this book of Jasher, but we have no idea what it was about. Or even in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, what we have is 1 Corinthians. There is reference to an earlier letter to the church in Corinth. So the very fact that we do have this book, bleak as it may be, means that we should not simply ignore it in favor of more edifying books. In fact, if we read this book rightly, we see that it describes a depressing situation that believers in Christ are set free from. It is indeed a depressing book. But 
we should not be depressed by it. Instead, we should see in it, as in much of the Old Testament, a severe need for a Redeemer who we have in Jesus. Much of the progression of the Old Testament seems to be like the cover of Michael Jackson's Heal the World, where they put a Band-Aid over a wound that goes much deeper than the surface. You see, Israel wanted a king like all the other nations when they needed a king like Jesus. And the writer of Ecclesiastes here writes about the meaning, meaninglessness of life, and he looks at all the pointless ways that people try to find meaning when our only meaning is in Christ. Therefore, if you haven't already figured out, I warn you that this sermon's going to be a little depressing. But there is hope in the end. We're going to make it through this together. So, bear with me. Now let's actually look at the text. Verse 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now it seems plain enough that the preacher is the son of King David and also the king himself. This can, mean, this can only mean that the preacher is King Solomon, the wisest of all the Israelite kings. However, there's a lot of disagreement over this issue. And many good Bible-believing Christians don't think that Solomon could have written this book. He couldn't have possibly written Ecclesiastes. And they list a number of reasons And none of them have convinced me. The primary argument is supposedly bad theology. Often very self-centered and cynical, which is why I like the book. And at times even atheistic. Some argue that Solomon could not have written these words. At best, the bulk of Ecclesiastes was written by someone else. An ungodly philosopher at odds with the God of Israel. And Solomon, or someone else, came in and dressed up the book with God language, adding an introduction and a conclusion that neatly ties it all together. At best, this is a secular book that has been repurposed, like taking an Alicia Keys song and making it about Jesus. At worst, though, this book doesn't belong in the Bible because it's not God-centered and uplifting. But as I've said before, I'm not convinced by this. If Ecclesiastes doesn't belong in the Bible, then neither do many of the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 88 doesn't end with, and God made everything better, and we all lived happily ever after. No. Psalm 88 ends with, my friends and family abandoned me, and darkness is now my only friend. If you think that the Bible is full of uplifting stories about godly, faithful people, then you probably haven't ever read it. The Bible isn't 
chicken soup for whatever soul. It's not a collection of stories about good people. It's not a collection of stories about how we as Christians should live. More often than not, it has stories about how we as Christians should not live. From Cain killing Abel to Judas betraying and Peter denying Jesus to a man named Demas who abandoned Paul because of his love for the present world. Many times God uses the story of people's failures to encourage us when we fail and to show us that grace is not for the perfect but for the sinful. Jesus says the physician comes not to heal the well but the sick. So in light of this, the writer of Ecclesiastes isn't showing us how to think about the life we live in and the world we live, the life we live and the world we live in. No, he's showing us exactly how not to think. He's doing this intentionally. I put forward that the writer of Ecclesiastes is indeed Solomon, the wise king, writing in his old age, which may explain some of the grumpiness and frustration. At times, it feels like he is Statler and Waldorf, the two cranky old Muppets that sit in the balcony and mock everything without ever actually participating. I can relate with this. Can you? Solomon had seen many wonders. He had been given wisdom and wealth by God. Had his, his kingdom expanded. He ruled over all the kingdoms that surrounded him. Yet, he turned away. And he worshipped idols. Because of this, God took away God would take away his kingdom. We're never told if Solomon repented or if he died as an idolater. But we are given these words. Words that tell us that there is no meaning outside of God. Who better to tell us than someone who had pursued idols and lost everything? So listen to his words and consider them well. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is the famous tagline of the book. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But what is vanity? What does Solomon mean when he says that all is vanity? This word, vanity, has puzzled translators for centuries because it's a very broad word. The word in Hebrew is hevel, which can mean all sorts of things. Worthless, useless, senseless, meaningless, temporary, like a breath, like the name Abel, Adam's short-lived son. So which one is it? Is everything worthless? That's what vanity means in English. Empty, valueless, like someone who is full of themselves. You're so vain, you probably 
think this song is about you. Is everything temporary, brief, just for a moment? That doesn't seem to fit with Solomon's view that though we die, the world stays forever. Now, this word, hevel, vanity, means meaninglessness, meaningless. Having no purpose, having no goal, and having no point. Like Sisyphus rolling that boulder up the hill, life is meaningless unless you know God. And by that, I don't mean that you know things about God, certain facts or church words, Christianese, but that you have an intimate relation with Him that you know Him. This is coming from a seminary student, so you should heed this well. Theology is a good thing, but far too often Christians hide behind good theology, right theology, and they never apply it to their daily lives. It's one thing to know that God is omnipresent, that He's everywhere. And it's quite another to know that God is with you even in your darkest times. Even when He seems far away, He is there. King David knows this. He says in Psalm 139, If I go up to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Even when life seems pointless, God is there. So for Solomon, everything is meaningless without God. So, meaninglessness of meaninglessness. That's a mouthful. All is meaningless. When we look at this phrase, meaninglessness of meaninglessness, we need to consider other similar phrases. We need to ask what of means. Can you define it? Can you give a concise definition of of? The dictionary can't. Every entry tells how it's used, but not what it means. Here, it means related to, associated with, or over. King of kings, Lord of lords. Just as Jesus is the king over every king and the Lord over every lord, the greatest king and the greatest lord, so too is the meaninglessness of life outside of God. It is the most Meaningless. Par excellence. There is nothing more meaningless than trying to live life without God. Without hope that He will make all that is sad come untrue. It's meaningless to tell someone who is sad or grieving to chin up that this too shall pass if you don't believe in a God who will someday wipe away every tear. The same word for meaningless is used of idols, false gods in the Bible. 1 Kings 16 talks about the vanity of the kings after 
Solomon. They worshiped idols instead of God and provoked God to anger with their idols, literally with their meaninglessness, their meaningless things, their meaningless gods. What they found meaningful, God called meaningless. It's easy to let ourselves become cynical here and to agree with Solomon that some things truly are meaningless. But where this hits closest to home is in the things that we find meaningful, things we treasure, things we get joy from. For me, it's my wife. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, for me, it's, it's records, it's books, it's, it's all just stuff. As a preacher once said, it's all just C-A-R-P. He wasn't trying to spell carp. But it's stuff. What brings us joy? It's stuff. Excuse me. Even these things are meaningless without God. However, with the knowledge of Christ, these things do take on meaning. That meaning is not found in our own desires and satisfactions. That meaning is only found in Christ, through whom redemption has been accomplished and applied. But I'm getting ahead of the text. So let's jump back in with a smile on our face. All is meaningless. Verse 3 asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Literally, it asks, what profit is there in all his trouble which he troubles? None. There is no profit. There is no reward, at least not a meaningful one, because we live in a fallen world. A broken system where good intentions and good actions sadly still have negative consequences. God calls us to do things that inevitably don't make sense. God calls us to live lives of love in a world of hate. He calls us to bring restoration to a world of destructive tendencies. And reconciliation in a world of shallow divisiveness. I'm about to step on some toes here, and I apologize. But hear me out. Because these things are good. But because of the broken system we live in, sin brings to the surface the negative implications. But these negative implications will one day be done away with. Praise the Lord. What's the point of the things we do? Some of us have our hearts set on gentrification. Moving into rundown neighborhoods in hopes of making them better, safer places. But what if we succeed? What if the bars start coming off the windows the rent goes up and the poor people get run out. And what, what used to be 
a ghetto, we've now turned into an inner city country club. On the other end of the spectrum, some of us have a heart for adoption. Instead of moving in, we take some out. We long to give dignity, God-given dignity, to a child who would otherwise not find it. But then the child assimilates into this culture. And their homeland, whether it's domestic or abroad, is still left in poverty and despair. Now, this doesn't mean that the Bible tells you that these things are pointless, that gentrification and adoption are a waste of time. No, it says the opposite. All of these things should be done to the glory of God. Because your success and your value are not in finished products or what may come of your decisions, but in God's love. All who believe have been forgiven of their sins and adopted as children of God, restored and reconciled. And He cherishes us. He cherishes us. Our value is not in anything we accomplish in this life. It's not in our marriage or if our kids walk with the Lord. It's not in our paycheck or our GPA. Our value is solely in Christ's love for us. Good works have negative consequences, but we're called to do them anyway. Adoption and gentrification are wonderful Godly things. And the church should encourage these things more. To do good works as they have been done for us by Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Everything else is meaningless in comparison. So what profit is there for man in all of his work if he does not have faith in Christ? Jesus asked a similar question in Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? There's nothing wrong with being rich. And there's nothing wrong with being poor. As long as you know that this is what God has for you. And as long as you know that he has something even better when he calls you home, the rich man who loves Jesus will be amazed by how much richer Christ is. And the poor man will be ready for heaven, which promises that earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. But still, While we live, we must do it for God's glory. But there's more to this text than just us, mankind. Without God's guiding hand, everything would be pointless. From the rising of the sun, to the blowing of the wind, to the running of the rivers. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. 
and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Whether or not this whole passage is, as some believe, a a poem, there's no doubt that these four verses are poetic. Unlike English poems, uh, which rely on rhyme and meter, Hebrew poetry relies on repetition. Just read through these verses again. They're full of it. A generation comes, a generation goes. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to the place where it rises. The wind blows around and around, and the wind returns. Rivers run to the sea, and the sea is never full. Where they flow, they will flow again. What does all this repetition mean? Well, it means that everything happens in cycles, going in circles. The earth around the sun, the winds around the earth, and the waters in their own little water cycle. They go in circles, big, meaningless circles. Well before evolution was a hot topic, Solomon seemed to nail it on the head. Without God, when will it ever end? Without God's hand orchestrating every event, What's the point? If there is no God, why does the sun rise and set? Why do the winds blow and the rivers flow? Why do generations come and go? Without God, even these things are meaningless. The language used here is interesting. Verse 5 says, The sun rises and sets and hastens to the place where it rests, as if it's short of breath, running from one place to the other. Oh, how we can relate with this. Running around like chickens with our heads cut off, we run from one task to another just to start all over again. Literally, it says the sun gasps to where it rises. There's no rest for the sun even at night. Once it clocks out, it must rush back to clock in. You may remember the old Dunkin' Donuts commercial where Fred the baker leaves for the day saying, time to make the donuts. Comes home exhausted, says, I made the donuts. Then he wakes up the next morning, goes downstairs to make the donuts, and is greeted by himself at the door saying, I already made the donuts. In verse 6, we see the wind blowing, going around and around. The King James Version famously says, it whirleth about continually, returning to where it started only to blow again. Solomon makes it seem like the wind gets dizzy from turning around. This verse literally reads, going towards the south and turning around to the north, turning around, turning around, the wind is going and by its turnings around, it has returned. This word for turning and returned is used five times in this verse. It leads a circular existence 
and without God, its turnings are meaningless. How often do we feel that our turnings, our turnings about are meaningless? We go to bed later than we want to, only to find out that our alarm goes off right on time. We make our circles, whether big or small, from bed to work and work to bed, from home to the store to the bank to the doctor to church to home, dropping off the kids and going to meetings and picking up the kids, only to start all over again tomorrow. Like the directions on the back of shampoo bottles, lather, rinse, repeat. When do we break free from this cycle? Do we look forward to the weekends only to find that they fly by? Or the summer only to find it's just as busy as the school year? What's the point? Prisoners count the days that they've been in prison as if that makes the days pass by any quicker. But are they counting down? Or are they counting up? It's easy to take an inventory of your life day to day and feel like nothing new ever happens. Or if anything new does happen, it's rarely a good thing. Generally, it's just one more thing to deal with, one more task to cram into your already busy schedule. But it's not as easy to look at our busy schedule and realize that God is there with us. He's not abandoned us to a life of frustration, to a restless cycle of work, sleep, work. He's there. He knows where you are. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows the circles that you spin. He knows the ruts that you make. And he knows the webs that you weave and get tangled up in. And he has a purpose for them. They may seem meaningless to you, but they are not meaningless to God, the true source of meaning. It may exhaust you, but you're not alone. But if you don't believe in Christ, then you can't possibly find any sense of purpose. People try to say that they live something like a purpose-driven life. And don't need to believe in God to find their purpose. But inevitably, that purpose always boils down to a self-serving, self-centered, utilitarian existence. You love those whom you love because it serves your purpose. It's better than being alone. You do good deeds because it makes you feel good. But even this you only do when it's convenient. You give to charities because of the tax deduction. You give to beggars simply because it feels good to pay it forward, whatever that means. And when hard times come, you raise your fists to the heavens and ask, what's the point? This can only result in a lonely existence. You may surround yourself with others, but at the end of the day, you still feel alone. Jean-Paul Sartre, 
was a French philosopher, and he wrote in his book, Nausea, nothing happens while you live. The scenery changes, people come in and go out. That's all. There are no beginnings. Days are tacked on to days without rhyme or reason. An interminable, monotonous addition. In his despair of life, he also writes, I felt myself in a solitude so frightful that I contemplated suicide. What held me back was the idea that no one, absolutely no one, would be moved by my death. That I would be even more alone in death than in life. What a nauseating view of life. What a godless view of life. That it has no purpose whatsoever. And that we are all really just alone in an overcrowded world. But this is not what the Christian is called to believe. There is a purpose to this life, but it's not our own. There is meaning to this life, but it's not the meaning that we make for ourselves. Paul writes to Timothy saying that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. There's much hope in these words. And, though, and it's through this knowledge that we should read the book of Ecclesiastes. And with this knowledge that we should live in this world that's constantly telling us that there is no God. And there is no purpose. But life is not like a sitcom. Where everything is resolved in 30 minutes. Paul gives this message of hope to Timothy in the midst of suffering and tears. And Solomon writes as a wise man, seeing that wisdom does not prevent hardship. Therefore, we must stand beside the non-believer and acknowledge that we live in a fallen and broken world. But where they have no hope, we have a good and true hope that all things will be made new. But until they are made new... We must live in this old and broken world, waiting patiently for our Redeemer to return. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ears filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Sadly, in this text, there is no immediate encouragement. There is no, there, there. I know it all seems pointless, but really it isn't. Instead, Solomon belabors the point. He's on a roll. And so he's beating this dead horse. He says that everything is exhausting, full 
of labor and weariness. So much so that man cannot even begin to speak of it. The eye cannot see it all and the ear can never hear too much of it. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, that is the key to history. Terrific energy is expended, civilizations are built up, excellent institutions are devised, but each time something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and cruel people to the top, and it all slides back into misery and ruin. However you deal the cards, some fatal flaw always comes along and messes everything up. That fatal flaw is sin. But this is nothing new. Since the first sin in the Garden of Eden, Satan has kept himself employed by ruining everything. And he is very good at his job. Whether it's demons or death, Satan does a good job of distracting us from the hope that we have in Christ. In our day in particular, Satan does his dirtiest under the idea that he doesn't even exist. And it's not just atheists that have written off Satan, but Christians too. After all, people that believe Satan is uh, alive and well are kind of crazy, right? I'd rather be crazy than wrong. If Satan can convince us he's no longer a threat, then we let our guard down and he takes over. You see, we live in a world that minimizes morals and celebrates sin. And in all these things, the question remains the same. Did God really say? You won't surely die. If it feels good, do it. Who's it going to hurt? You only live once. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 10 poses a question. Is there such a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? But it's actually not a question. It's a statement. There is such a thing. There is always such a thing where someone says, look, this is new. I have found a new way. Let's get rid of the old way. The old religion that hurts the weak and blesses the powerful. There is a new way. But it's just not true. It's existed before. There's nothing new under the sun. Creation has been ruined, and there is no way that we can fix it. We need a new creation, one that can come only in Christ. Believers are called new creations. Believers are the new creations. We must take off our old selves and live as new men and women because one day we will be new men and women. We will have new bodies and we will live and never die in the new Jerusalem. And it's not like the one that Solomon knew or the one that Jesus knew or the one that we know today. It will be new 
and unlike anything we have ever seen. You see, there's nothing new under the sun, but one day Jesus will return and the sun will fade away. And there will be no need for a sun because the glory of God will give that new city light and the Lamb will be its lamp. But though that day has yet to come and we still live and see with the light of the sun, we live in a world of darkness. I ask you to take seriously the words of Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Surely people look at the cross and see that man dying, crying out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they say that it was meaningless. At best, it's the wrongful death of a godly man, and at worst, it's a gruesome story that was made up. That's not a fable. This is the one true gospel, that Christ became a man like us and lived under the same sun that we do and died for our sins and defeated death by rising again so that all who believe in him will not perish but will have eternal life. There was nothing meaningless about this, but everything else outside of this is meaningless. As Jean-Paul Sartre said, that no one, absolutely no one, would be moved by his death. There were certainly some who weren't moved by the death, by that one man's death, sorry, by the death of that perfect man, God in the flesh. But we're a witness, an example of just how much that one man's death was truly meaningful. How through death, we were given life. And just as Sartre said that he would be even more alone in death than life, God turned his face away from his son, Jesus. Jesus was alone and forsaken so that we would never have to be. This is God's great purpose and his great rescue plan. But we need to be careful about how we apply this purpose to the cross. The cross didn't open the gates of heaven to let you in. The cross opened the gates of hell to let you out. The resurrection opened the gates of heaven to let you in. We need both. We need cross and empty tomb. Otherwise, Paul says, what's the point? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. If you believe this, I ask you to remember this. Let it be written on your heart that God does not do anything without a purpose. Even if you feel like everything is meaningless, know that God will somehow use that in your life. And he will draw you to himself and he will give 
even the most mundane things purpose for His glory. And if you don't believe this, I ask you to think about it. What's the point of your life without God, without Jesus Christ? What do you plan to accomplish if there's nothing new under the sun? If generations come and go, what's the meaning of your life? What's the point? Look to Christ. Repent and believe and see that He has a purpose, that all is not meaningless, but in Him, everything finds meaning.